Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, the Prime Minister of Israel visits Washington this week, and we discuss the influencers who affect America-Israel relations. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Earlier this week, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, better known as APAC, held its annual conference. This pro-Israel 501c4 lobbying group is one of the most prominent in Washington, and its conference draws senior members of both parties. This year's conference was addressed by Republican Vice President Mike Pence and the Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. Other notables addressing the group included Israel's prime minister and the leader of that country's largest opposition party, the president of Guatemala, and a number of other American politicians from both major parties. Public opinion polling shows strong support for the Jewish state among Americans, but divisions are growing. A university in Washington, D.C. was leafleted by neo-Nazi extremists demanding APAC go home, even as mainstream Republicans have increased their already staunch support of Israel. While Democratic Party leadership currently feels comfortable backing Israel, opinion polls show that younger, more left-wing, and more irreligious Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters sympathize more with the Palestinians, leading the charge to break not only the U.S. alliance with Israel, but all diplomatic, cultural, and economic ties is an international activist movement known as Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS. In the United States, BDS focuses on college campuses and academic institutions where the far left is ascendant. However, as you can see in the recent passage and later withdrawal of a city contract resolution by New Orleans that would have discouraged business with Israel, the BDS movement is beginning to rise as a political force in left-leaning constituencies. Uh, now, Mike, let's start with just a quick primer on uh, the history of U.S.-Israel relations. So in 1917, Great Britain, which had, after World War I, been granted the mandate to govern what the region known then as Palestine uh, by the League of Nations, the predecessor organization to the UN. Uh, in 1917, Britain issues what's called the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration expresses support for a Jewish homeland in the region of Palestine. In 1922, uh, the US Congress passes a resolution and it's signed by President Hoover, uh, not President Hoover, President Harding, um, that endorses the uh, the, symp the, uh, the sentiments of the Balfour Declaration. Um, it's called the Lodge Fish Re Resolution. And then 25, uh, 26 years later, after World War II, after, um, after the Holocaust, uh, the rate of Jewish emigration to Palestine increases. There's some conflict. Britain wants out. Uh, the UN draws up a partition plan between the most, mostly Muslim but also Christian Arabs and the Jewish settlers. Uh, the Israel, the what would become the Israelis, the Jewish settlers, take that partition plan and use it to declare their independence. The United States immediately recognizes them. Uh, President Truman immediate is one of one of, if not the first uh, foreign power to recognize the new state of Israel. And then immediately war breaks out. <laughs> yes. Well, and so up to that point, uh, the U.S. relations were fairly warm. But over time, there were ups and downs in the relationship, weren't there? 
So the state, even as Truman is considering whether or not to recognize this new Jewish state, uh, the State Department was bitterly opposed uh, because since 1945, the Arab League, which which is is and was and still is uh, the sort of representative body for the various Arab countries and the various Arab populations, had said, we're not going to do business with anybody who does business with the, the Jewish settlers, later the state of Israel. Uh, obviously, the Arab states are sitting on many strategic resources. Back in the 40s and 50s, there were concerns about the Cold War. If Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia had gone into the Soviet bloc, that would have, ca- that would have caused problems for the U.S. strategic strategic interests. And what we used to call happily the free world. And what we used to call happily the free world. Uh, So kind of the peak of this, what you might call the State Department view of the American-Israeli relationship was in 1956 when uh, Israel, with uh, supporting the French and the British, invades Egypt to retake the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal had been nationalized by the newly... uh, ascendant nationalist Arab leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, This was seen by Britain and France, who had built and owned the canal as an affront to their sovereignty and an affront to their strategic interests. Uh, They got together with the Israelis to to liberate the Suez Canal, and President Eisenhower said, I'm going to cut off your oil if you don't withdraw. And they withdrew. (laughs) So... uh... That next, you have uh, growing closeness to Israel. So under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the, the rift that had emerged over Suez is kind of repaired. And in 1967, when Israel wins the Six-Day War, uh, which, you know, that could be an episode all in, all in, an episode on history all into itself, the um, the the origins and how that conflict was prosecuted. Uh, suffice to say, after the Six Day War breaks out, Israel wins. Uh, Israel comes into a lot of territory from Egypt and Jordan, uh, some of which it still it still retains. It still occupies in the in the left wing in the left wing parlance. Administers in the <laughs> in the more uh, more favorable parlance. Um, but the Johnson administration had given Israel the green flag, you know, basically a green light to do what it needed to do. In 1973, the Arabs uh, attack Israel, you know, Israel attack, attacks the Arabs, they say preemptively. Uh, in 1967 and 1973, the Arabs attack first. Uh, in 1973, the Israelis also win. Uh, and after these con- after these these conflicts, the the pol- politicians in the United States pretty well recognized that the uh, that the Arab states were pretty closely aligned at this time at this point with the Soviets, and that they needed to the U.S.'s only way to have a, a good friend in the Middle East was to align with Israel. Then in the '80s, things continued friendly. The for all the uh, for all the sort of difficulties that 
the Israeli-American relationship had under President George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of State Jim Baker uh, in 1989, uh, Bush uh, declared a formally integrated Israel and several and a few other countries into the U.S. alliance system. Uh, Israel was one of the one of the countries declared a major non-NATO ally in 1989. Yep, uh, and then through the the 90s and the aughts. Uh, the U.S. continued to be heavily mixed up in Middle Eastern issues, obviously. All presidents since Clinton. In, in, 19, in the early 1990s, Clinton sits, sits, da- sits down uh, the Israeli government and the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, the, now the Palestinian Authority, uh, the nominal representative government-ish thing that sometimes engages in terrorism, of the Palestinian side, uh, to for a series of peace, a series of peace talks, which result in the Oslo Accords, uh, Israel gives limited autonomy, limited recognition to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, again, very limited recognition. In the late two thousands, a peace plan is proposed. Uh, neither, you know. It's not considered satisfactory to either side. War breaks out again, uh, what becomes known as the Second Intifada. Throughout the Bush and Obama administrations, there's always talk of a peace plan. Uh, Bush had the roadmap to peace. Uh, Obama had a, a number, tried to leverage pressure on Israel to get Israel to sit down at the table. Including intervening in their elections, one might add, colluding it, it with was, particular it was, political parties with U.S. tax dollars. It was wide. It was widely believed, and I believe there is some documentary evidence to indicate that uh, President Obama and the Democratic Party were providing support to the Zionist Union, which is the alliance of the Israeli Labor Party, uh, to try to secure the Israeli a a more negotiation-minded government than the Likud party of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, that blew up in their face, and Netanyahu is reelected. And remains prime minister. And, and, re- and remains prime minister amid a substantial political crisis, a domestic political crisis that could be an episode all to itself. Um, but, you know, even the, the Trump administration, uh, although it has sort of swung back uh, towards an Israel-favorable policy, uh, has expressed a desire to secure the ultimate deal. Uh, and an arrangement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, pr- proof that hope does indeed spring eternal. Well, let's come now to this week uh, and APAC's uh, meeting in Washington, D.C., and let's start with a little uh, background on what APAC is. So APAC is a, is a lobbying organization that since the 1960s, when it was founded by a former Israeli official, has sought to represent the interests of the Israeli government, whoever they are, to the American government, whoever they are, with the interests of building close political and economic and social ties between the two countries. Uh, You know, they... Now, what would the left say about APEC? Of course, the left (laughs) says they're an insidious fifth column that's, you know, undermining, you know, the, uh, the, the, let me do my air quotes, the Israel lobby, uh, that undermines the wise American prudent foreign policy of the State Department that would see neutrality between the uh, the 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 Jews and the Arabs. Um, 
now the real reason that American politicians tend to support Israel over the over the uh, the Palestinians in the Arab states when they come into conflict, or certainly the the Israelis over Iran, more recently the more recently the hostile power, the not so secret secret of current Middle Eastern affairs is that the Israelis and the Arabs are kind of almost friends now, even though they don't recognize each other's countries. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, or we should say, to, following up on your yeah. Iran comment, Iran being the most powerful Shia Muslim country, the Sunni Muslim countries like the Saudis and whatnot are highly desirous, although they will never admit it in public, of Israel's help against their Shia yes, it, enemies. The, 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 the fir- one of the first laws of international relations is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and so laying all that aside, pretty consistently, if you look at public opinion polling, Americans have fairly warm views of Israel, more Americans than not side with Israel over the Palestinians, although there has been some change in how that, uh, how that view is constructed. Uh, it used to be that everyone, there was kind of no partisan difference. It was everybody was, you know, roughly 40, you know, 50% sided with uh, Israel over the Palestinians, 20% were neutral, 20% sided with the Palestinians. Now Republicans are like, you know, 70% pro-Israel, 5% pro-Palestinian, and Democrats are like 30-30-30. Interesting given which side of the political spectrum is usually accused of anti-Semitism, but... Well, that's, you, that's, that's that, a whole other show for that, us. That, that's, a, that's a whole other show, and both sides are guilty, as we've discovered this week. But, um, uh, well, now, on, <clears throat> on APAC, uh, when did you say that it was um, formally established, and can you give us a, a rough uh, idea of its size? It was So it's formally, formally established after the Suez, after the Suez crisis uh, in the early 1960s. And it has grown to the point where it has an annual budget that can exceed $100 million. Uh, as lobbying groups go, that's fairly large. Yes. The top lobbying, for, for reference, the top lobbying uh, group uh, for Obamacare, Healthcare for America Now, was about a $62 million campaign. And, this, uh, and, and let's be clear, you know, APAC is a longstanding institution with that kind of, um, with that kind of, of, of budget, giving it a, quite a lot of staying power, quite a lot of, of the, the ability to build relationships on Capitol Hill uh, and to represent the, the views of the Israeli, again, the views of the Israeli government, whoever they happen to be. Yep. Now, <clears throat> in 2015, uh, APEC did not have uh, a great year because one of its priorities then was fighting against the Obama administration's Iran deal. In Kind of one of the the big counters to the idea that you can buy policy or the idea that you can buy elections, although APAC doesn't really play in elections because it's strictly it tries to be as strictly bipartisan as it can possibly be, um, is that in 2015 the Obama administration pushes this Iran nuclear deal. Uh, we discussed. In some in some depth, the Iran nuclear deal and the echo chamber that was set up to support it. Uh, to give you an update, Ben Rhodes, the architect of the echo chamber, now has a new project, uh, where, which is going to uh, attack the a five hundred one c four organization that's going to attack the Trump administration for not following the Obama administration's foreign policy. 
Yes, we should uh, say Ben Rhodes was at the time, uh, he was a high-ranking official on the National Security Council for Obama, um, and his brother was uh, president of one of the major networks, news divisions, I believe. And, and, now, and now Ben Rhodes is also a board member of the Plowshares Fund, which funded the Echo Chamber. <laughs> yes, the Plowshares Fund, which we discuss in extensively in that Extensively episode in five. episode five, Uprising in Iran. Yes. Um, so the APAC was unable to use its influence over Congress to forestall the, the Iran deal. Um, and that was seen as a pretty big hit to its ability uh, to be a lobbying force. Yeah. Now, if somebody were skeptical about APAC really being bipartisan, uh, is there some evidence uh, of its true bipartisan nature? Probably the best evidence is how divided its staff are uh, politically. There, uh, the estimate suggests that a majority of its donors are Democrats. This kind of makes sense. It tends to rely on the on the Jewish community for a lot of its uh, for a lot of its funding. Uh, the Jewish community is about three to one Democrat uh, as of the latest exit polls. Yes, in the in the harsh old joke, I believe it goes that uh, Jews live like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. <laughs> um, and as for its staff, they estimate about sixty percent are Democrats. Um, for a big DC lobbying organization that is not associated with some business interest, you know, pharma's probably not 100% one way or the other, um, but the NRA probably is almost mostly Republicans. Yes. Uh, for it to be 60-40 or 60-20, you know, or 60-30-10 if some are independents, uh, that's, that's actually fairly close to the middle of the road for DC DC advocacy organizations. Though, as we'll discuss later, that uh, being bipartisan does not necessarily mean being full of peace and happiness uh, internally. No, especially when you are as now, again, now they're in a fairly awkward position because they represent as their kind of reason for existence is to represent the interests of the Israeli government. That's the Likud government of, of Benjamin Netanyahu. As of this morning when we started. As of this morning when we started, <laughs> he is being investigated for nasty things, and that may change at any that may change at any moment. Also, the nature of Israeli politics it may change at any moment. Um, the to a Republican government of Donald Trump, uh, neither of which is particularly appealing to the American Jewish community. <laughs> yes. So well now, but uh, we should be clear, they are by no means the only significant uh, Jewish influence group uh, in American politics. Uh, why don't you take us uh, on a little tour of some of the others? So the two other sort of, I mean, they're, I have them listed here as rivals. They're much smaller and much more factional, uh, but they are, you know, advocating on, on Israel policy from a pro, from a uh, pro-Zionist perspective. Uh, you have the Zionist Organization of America on the right. Uh, it has 501c3, budget of roughly $5 million. Uh, it had actually at one point lost its tax status because it didn't do its paperwork. Uh, it was reinstated shortly after it did its paperwork. Now, um, the, rule, the rule being, I believe, if you do, if three, you go three years without filing... Three years without filing your tax return, you automatically lose your status. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to go get it back. Um 
The original uh, ZOA was founded in the 1890s. It claims to be the oldest Zionist organization in the United States. Uh, it has received quite a bit of funding from Republican donor and Las Vegas Sands casino uh, owner, operator, operator uh, Sheldon Adelson, um, and his foundation, the Adelson Family Foundation. Uh, and ZOA has been criticized for aligning with some of the populist far-right figures uh, like former Trump administration official Steve Bannon. Um, and, that, and then on the other side... <laughs> yep, on the left-hand side of the spectrum. On the left-hand side, you have J Street, which was... Uh, it's a 501c4 with a 501c3. Uh, in 2015, its C3 budget was $10 million. Its C4 in 2014 was about $2 million. So it's considerably bigger as, an, as a set of entities than ZOA, but considerably smaller than APAC. Uh, you know, it's tagged... Its tagline is that it's pro-Israel, pro-peace, seeks to represent the the liberal view that Israel should should continue to exist but should withdraw uh, to the extent practicable to the 1949 armistice lines, uh, known in the technical term as the Green Line. Um, Formed in 2007, uh, sought to kind of ride the wave of the Obama administration, and in the second term, in Obama's second term, it was very closely aligned with the administration. It was funded by Plowshares and by Rockefeller Brothers Fund to support the Iran deal, um, and the kind of what it plays on, which I mentioned a little bit earlier in talking about APEC's situation representing the Netanyahu government to the Trump administration is that there's a growing division. The two sort of lo- the two largest J- Jewish communities in the world are in the United States and Israel. Um, together, they make up an estimated 85% of the world's Jews. Uh, the American Jewish community is pr- politically left of center, uh, is aligned with a strong separation of religion and state, whereas the Israeli state and the Israeli Jewish community uh, are more more national conservative. Uh, the the national camp of Netanyahu won uh, won an outright majority of, of the vote in the last Israeli election, uh, and their society uh, it is structurally more based on the Jewish religion uh, in a way that to an American, especially an American of a non Christian religion who is you know sees separation of church of what we would call separation of church and state, as the bulwark of your freedom to then go to a place where, uh, you know, the buses don't run on Saturday or and where the, uh, the most observant community is exempted from the draft or at least has been exempted from the draft. There have been some changes in the law that I'm not sure where they stand right now. Uh, that, that can be kind of jarring. Uh, so... The where where J Street kind of comes in is it represents that secular, you could say pacifist impulse among the American Jewish community. Yep, and I want to uh, just be sure we get on the record. Um, again, people can go to our influencewatch.org for more of the details of this. But uh, you mentioned how uh, the left wing J Street uh, in its C three arm. Uh, is funded by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which we will come back to because they're very important in this whole area. 
and you've also mentioned the Plowshares Fund, which was the major funder for the, the echo chamber supporting the Iran if you, deal. And if, and if you want, again, more on Plowshares, uh, obviously go to influencewatch.org, but also you can watch, uh, go back to episode five, Uprising in Iran. Yeah, of we, this when, podcast. Of, the, of yeah. this podcast when we discussed. But let's get two more funders just uh, mentioned on the record uh, for the C3 part of J Street, and that is the Tides Foundation, which is, uh, if it were a conservative funder, would be known as a dark money powerhouse. Uh, it is, in fact, larger than the <laughs> largest, quote-unquote, dark money powerhouse on the right, uh, and the uh, Skoll Global, Global Threats Fund. So it is funded by a number of significant left-wing donors. Well, let's switch now to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, which is a, uh, a major counterpoise to uh, APEX efforts uh, at strengthening uh, American and Israeli ties. Uh, tell us a bit about where it comes from. So in the early 2000s, in, in 2001, the, the United Nations holds the uh, the Durban Conference, the World Conference Against Racism uh, in Durban, South Africa. And among the things that it planned to do was to issue a resolution equating Zionism, the view that the Jews uh, should have a national home in Eretz Israel, the, the land of Israel, uh, with racism. Uh, the UN General Assembly had held that back in the 1970s. Uh, the U.S. Ambassador Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, a Democrat, a who would later become a Democratic senator from New York. Uh, uh, after he cast his no vote, he hugged the Israeli ambassadors. They both walked out of the room. <laughs> um, and speaking of walkouts, and, and speaking of walkouts, the United States delegation and then uh, walked out of the 2001 World Conference because it intended to do this again. Yes. The UN General Assembly in the 1990s uh, at the pretty strong urging of George H.W. Bush, rescinded that that uh, it's holding that Zionism was racism. Um, so... It was all—wasn't uh, Durban also going to—wasn't uh, uh, there another major issue in Israel that the Durban was going to respond to, the, uh, the Second Intifada terrorist campaign? Right, that had— uh, after a peace negotiation, which had been brokered by— Pre by former President Bill Clinton, fell through in 2000. Uh, war broke out. You know, war breaks out again between uh, the Palestinian terrorist organizations and the Israeli security forces. Uh, later, after the after the Durban conference in the mid 2000s, the Israelis, uh, in order to attempt to control the travel of people who might be interested in causing them harm. Uh, built a security barrier, uh, and they did not build it on the 1949 armistice line, uh, which caused quite a bit of controversy. Yep. Now, uh, just a little side note here on just how radical the Tides Foundation uh, and its grantees are in such things. After that uh, Durban conference in 2001, that was that was going to uh, condemn and, Zionism and, 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 and although the the conference itself did not issue the the Zionism is Racism Resolution again, uh, the NGO Forum, the Non-Governmental Organization Forum, issued a very similar statement. Yes. And which, which leads into what you were... Yes, <laughs> exactly. And they were... Uh, uh, and Israel was by no means the only target of attack uh, by the far-left groups uh, prevalent at, at the Durban conference there. Um, so after the conference, uh, you have Linda Burnham, 
of the Women of Color Resource Center, which is a Tides-funded uh, nonprofit. Uh, she praised its speakers, criticized the U.S. for walking out, and at an awards ceremony one month after the September 11 bombings, um, she, uh, she said, the dream of endless greed, aggression, and world dominance has been revealed for the appalling nightmare it always was. The fortress, meaning the United States, has been breached, and it will be breached again and again. Uh, and I would just add, too, that this, uh, the same award ceremony where she made this speech, uh, they honored Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of California, because she was the only member of Congress uh, who had earlier that year voted against authorizing the use of force in Afghanistan, uh, where Osama bin Laden, the head of the group that responsible for the Trade Center uh, attack, uh, was holed up. So that's a, uh, that's a little sidelight into the far left side of the philanthropy and nonprofit world. But uh, there's one more thing that came out of that uh, Durban conference, and that is um, the Ford Foundation was founded was discovered to have funded some of funded, more to funded a number groups. a number of the more extreme of the more extreme groups in the in the, in the Durban conference. The uh, the Ford the the Ford Foundation did not like the publicity they had gotten for all of this, uh, and so they reevaluated their grant making. Uh, and then they they uh, instituted a policy where no recipient of Ford Foundation money can openly advocate for the destruction of any state, which was which, wi widely reported, which was widely as, reported being, as being Israel. Yes, the uh, the Israel. And I should add that in the philanthropy world, this was highly controversial at the time. There were many uh, left of center nonprofits that attacked Ford for being outrageous enough to say that essentially you shouldn't fund groups that work with Hamas and, and other terrorist organizations. And, um, uh, but I, I will give credit to uh, Adam Meyerson of the Philanthropy Roundtable for the best joke, gr very grim joke, but a, but a appropriate joke in the episode. And that was, uh, finally, the Ford Foundation has discovered a bit of donor intent that it can respect. Now, you can explain the, the joke there. Henry, uh, Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, from which the Ford Foundation got most of its money, uh, was a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, and, and funded. Among, among, the thing, <laughs> among the things that he did uh, was he funded the publication of a number of, co uh, a number of print runs of the, in, of the infamous anti-Semitic tract, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. <laughs> yeah. Infamous and, and entirely false. In, infamous and entirely false. Yes. Infamous because it is entirely false. Yes. So, so the grim joke was that the Ford Foundation, <laughs> in funding Palestinian terrorists, was at long last doing something that it's, uh, the man who provided it with its billions of dollars uh, would have approved of. Well, let's get back to the uh, boycott divestment sanctions uh, groups. What is it exactly that they are advocating for? So the idea is that the idea behind BDS is that Israel is no different than apartheid South Africa, um, the, and that, therefore, the strategies that were employed by the left to put pressure and ultimately end the apartheid South African government, uh, boycotting its products, uh, withdrawing investment, and instituting international sanctions should be applied to Israel. Uh, the ultimate the ultimate effect would be to break off economic and social ties 
and reject its position as the sovereign expression of the Jewish people's peoplehood. Um, now, if you are on a college campus today, uh, what is the group that you are most likely to have heard of in connection with this broader movement of BDS? So the, the American college branch of, of BDS is generally carried out through groups called Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, they say they have 115 chapters on American university campuses, uh, and they've had some limited success in getting student governments, often under extremely kind of nefarious circumstances. Uh, a suspicious number of these votes have been held on the day before or the day of a Jewish holiday. Um, to pass anti-Israel resolutions calling on their universities to divest or calling on their uh, academics not to interact with academics from Israel. Yep. And there are, what are some of the other groups that have been uh, allies with the BDS movement? Uh, other, other prominent groups that have, been, that have been involved are Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, the American Friends Service Committee, which is an arm of the Quaker religious movement, and then the anti-war activist group Code Pink, which popped up in the Bush administration. Yeah, but is still around. But is still around, believe it or not. Yes. And uh, then, the, of course, there are significant funders uh, for BDS uh, among the, the larger philanthropy world. There's one. Uh, the one major philanthropy that openly funds BDS groups is the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Uh, the fund says they are in they are neutral, they have no position, but they give unrestricted grants to groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, the American Friends Service Committee, that can then be used for BDS activities. Yeah, so apparently they're not proud of their support for they, BDS. They're something they'd rather people not know about. Uh, other, the other sort of semi-notable funder is the Firedall Foundation, which is the personal foundation of a couple of Democratic donors from California. Yep. Now, to, to pull back for just a second, uh, traditionally, uh, the anti-Semitism that would seem to at least be a close bed partner of some of these, uh, this type of work. Right. The, 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 state, the U.S. State Department actually has a pretty reasonable, in my, in my opinion, a pretty reasonable way to draw the line between criticism of Israel or even criticism of Zionism that is, you know, not anti-Semitic and criticism of Israel and criticism of Zionism that is. And that's whether you, whether it's, whether you are holding Israel to the same standard of any other, of any other democratic country. You know, if you're an anti-Zionist and you believe that actually you know, all the population transfers in the 20th century in Europe were an illegitimate and people should be restored their property in the, in the Sudetenland or in East Prussia or in, um, uh, in Alsace-Lorraine uh, that, that, or in, South, in the Sud-Tirol, you know, then, and that Israel is illegitimate, then, okay, you're, pro you're probably not an anti-Semite. <laughs> you know, you're, you're probably coming... Uh, you're coming at it from a, you know, I, I think an international legal position that is untenable in the modern world. Um, but if you say, well, you know, all all other settler states are fine, all other, uh, you know, all other population transfers are fine. You know, the the Treaty of Trianon, which ceded, which after World War One ceded a bunch of Hungary to Romania, totally legitimate. Uh, but those Israelis. 
yeah. then I can, then I think I can question your <laughs> yes. And as I said, I always like to throw a bit of political philosophy in. So so, uh, in recent centuries, typically it would be the right of center thinkers uh, and movements that w- would have been associated with uh, anti-Semitism. But interestingly, with Karl Marx, uh, though he was himself uh, Jewish, you begin to have a flip where anti-Semitism becomes a significant factor on the left side of the spectrum. I think, I think it's very important to point out that anti-Semitism is not the exclusive province of either political faction. Just this week, we've had a controversy where the, a couple of people in the leadership of the Women's March, the, the left-wing, uh, you know, sprung up after Trump, activist movement. Famous for their hats. Notable for the, notable for the hats. Um, that they were at the annual convention, the Savior's Day of Louis Farrakhan, the uh, leader of the Nation of Islam, who has said and believes apparently sincerely, because he's said basically that he is, uh, a lot of horrible things about the Jews. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and not the state of Israel, the Jews. Yes. Uh, and and we've also seen, you know, the Charlottesville marchers uh, marching explicitly under Nazi flags. There is, it's a, it's a poison of the human soul, not a not something that inheres to either, you know, broader political faction. It inheres to the fringes of both. Yes. Uh, although, to be fair, since the mainstream media tends to be a little more observant of its cropping up on the right side of the spectrum, we can the left, we can cer- we can certainly question whether it's fairly whether it's fairly and equitably policed, but. The solution is to fairly and equitably police it, not to brush the right-wing anti-Semitism under the rug. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I only uh, raise that because I, uh, we would be remiss here if we didn't note uh, left-wing organizing groups uh, that have gotten c- connected up with the, BD- the, the larger BDS movement. Uh, so, for instance, the Democratic Socialists of America. Can you tell us a bit about that? Quick background. The DSA are... A, the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, are a are the far left of the Democratic Party. Openly socialist, openly on the on the extreme left. Um, and in 2017, at their annual convention, they voted for BDS. Uh, they voted uh, for, to endorse. It. They, they voted to endorse it. Um, a member of the DSA who had been running for uh, lieutenant governor of Illinois actually had to get had to withdraw from his ticket uh, because he supported BDS. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement in 2016 in their manifesto, uh, you know, endorsed BDS and accused Israel of genocide. Yes. <laughs> so not uh, uh, not pretty. Well, what are um, some of the responses uh, that have? to BDS from pro-Israel uh, sources. So the Israeli government, controversially, um, has decided that if you advocate BDS, you want to boycott Israel, you can't go to Israel. Uh, they have Israel a, will boycott Israel, you. Israel, they, they frame it as Israel will boycott you. Uh, among the groups that 
their officials are now not permitted to enter Israel or Jewish Voice for Peace, Americans Friends Service Committee, and Code Pink. Um, the a related move by some American states, and it was proposed at the federal level and then kind of stalled because some people thought, I don't think necessarily unreasonably, that it was that they were getting too close to violating the First Amendment, is forbidding government payments or government contracts with people or entities who have endorsed BDS. Now, with the, pro-Israel, with the organized pro-Israel people, APAC, um, people who support these, these laws uh, would say is that they're modeled on a law that the U.S. federal government passed in the 1970s. In the 1970s, the Arab, the Arab League, which has, as we mentioned earlier, maintained to varying degrees of rigor a boycott against the state of a boycott against the state of Israel decided to do a secondary boycott. That it's not just, oh, you're an Israeli, we won't do business with you. It's you do business with an Israeli, therefore we don't do we won't do business with you. And the US government response was that they made it illegal to comply with the secondary boycott request. Um, and basically and ultimately correctly uh, determining that if once we take away the ability of it to be to pick on a country at random, Saudi Arabia picking on Coca-Cola, to make it Saudi Arabia picking on the United States, that they could make Saudi Arabia back down, which is ultimately what happened. Now, to be fair to the, to the left side of the spectrum, uh, you can find uh, prominent politicians who are fairly far on the left uh, who nonetheless recoil at BDS. You know, uh, we, we mentioned in the, in the introduction that Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer was speaking at APAC. One of the things that he said was that BDS was obviously anti-Semitic. Um, now, again, I don't know if I would necessarily go that far. I obviously don't agree with BDS, <laughs> uh, but that's because I support this, the state of Israel, <laughs> um, as, does, as does, to be fair, Chuck Schumer. Um, the... Uh, you know, there, there were a number of Democratic, uh, Democratic sponsors of the, uh, of the anti-BDS bill that got stalled because it was seen as being too close to uh, going against the First Amendment. Uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor of New York, uh, was, you know, uh, issued one of these anti-BDS contracting orders uh, and when she was running for president, Hillary Clinton wrote a letter to a number of Democratic donors, most prominent among them is Haim Sabin, um, who's an entertainment industry figure, uh, you know, asking them for their help in how she should combat BDS. So as of this point, the mainstream, de- the uh, most mainstream Democrats uh, have, taken a, have taken a hostile position to the BDS movement. And interestingly, uh, there is, you know, li- no evidence that George Soros supports it. You know, normally he's a, you know, he is the pretty big, pretty substantial funder um, of left-wing movements, um, but certainly, you know, but he has not, you know, funded groups like Jewish Voice for Peace or Code Pink, um, and he has, in fact, 
he in fact boycott divestment and sanctions came after him in 2014 because his uh, one of his hedge funds invested in SodaStream, which is an Israeli company that operates a factory in the contested West Bank. Yes. Uh, now, on the flip side, however, uh, there have definitely been BDS groups who have flirted with pretty extreme Palestinian uh, issues. Um, Razmea Oday, uh, for instance, being one. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So Razmia Oday uh, was convicted by an Israeli court of involvement in a bombing attack that killed two, uh, killed two Israeli students back in the 60s. She was a member of the terrorist organization Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Uh, sort of a Bernadine Dorn of, uh, of Palestine. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they had, the PFLP actually had some success in killing people they were trying to kill. Yes. <laughs> um, the so she in fact was she was she's a Jordanian national was immigrated to the United States was denaturalized lost her citizenship because she had lied on her immigration paperwork she had, she had found been found to falsify her immigration paperwork and not declare that she had been convicted of this uh, so before she was kicked out of the U S for having lied to the immigration services. Uh, she spoke at a Jewish Voice for Peace conference in 2017. Um, the international BDS movement, we've been focusing on the United States, but the international BDS movement uh, in 2015, you know, a rash of stabbing attacks by Palestinian extremists uh, against Israeli security forces and Israeli civilians break out, becomes known sort of colloquially as the stabbing intifada. Um, Concurrent with that, the international BDS movement calls for an international BDS wave of solidarity with Palestinian popular resistance. You know, again, you get into the question of, are you supporting terrorism? <laughs> yes. Well, I think, uh, I suppose our, our wrap-up then could be that this is absolutely a, an area in public policy where there is going to be lots uh, of roiling for uh, a very long time. We've been, we've been going... For you know, if you set the beginning of the of the controversy and the conflict of the Balfour Declaration, you're talking 101 years. If you set it at you know the end of World War II, you're talking you know what 73 years. You set it Israeli independence 70 years. Uh, you know there as there's always going to be this this problem because you have people who administer administer the country of the you know the, the the Jewish state Israel administer the country and yet they have a substantial population living under their rule who do not wish to be ruled by them and and, and but yet you know Israel has legitimate fears for its security because it has although it now has a peace treaty with Jordan and Egypt how long will those last Egypt when Egypt was controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood from 2012 to 2013 they repudiated the peace treaty uh, and then it was only the the when military rule was reestablished, that the peace treaty was put back into force. Um, you know, so how stable are, is the peace with the military regime in Egypt and the Hashemites in Jordan? Uh, they have war on their northern border because they have share a border with Syria. You know, are they then going to create a, a new state out of territory they currently administer if even that administration is causing them political and economic problems. 
that could then become a hostile, you know, a hostile entity. And just as there's polarization in the Middle East, as we pointed out, there's considerable polarization on these issues, considerable and growing polarization on these issues in America. So as, as and you know, as for for a long for a long time, again, there has been strong bipartisan support for Israel, but the danger, uh, which APAC uh, is dis- is discovering, uh, is that as the Republicans become you know enthusiastic. Uh, supporters of Israel, and you know, it's not a surprise. I think that Republican support for Israel begins to, gr- you know, starts growing, and Democrat support for Israel starts to decline when the alignment, labor, left coalition in Israel starts to lose elections. They ruled the country uh, without interruption from '48 to '79. Since 79, it's mostly been Likud, or, you know, Likud and its predecessor parties. Uh, you know, I, if that, you know, if that continues, or if it, or, you know, conceivably if it reverses and it goes the other way, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a hard line, especially in a polarizing, in a country where every issue becomes polarized, for a group like APAC to walk that walk that line and to keep its issue as nonpartisan as an issue can be. Indeed. Well, that's our show for this week. If you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, you should know that we broadcast a live version on video at 10 a.m. Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube, and you can find our pages by searching for Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.